Well, we continue our our four-part series looking at this key phrase as it emerges in the context of the Christmas story, do not be afraid. And we looked last week at God's message to Zechariah through Gabriel, and he was positioning Zechariah and his wife for a very special position in redemptive history, using them even in their old age, despite the limitations of that uh, season of life, to bring John the Baptist, the, the prophet uh, promised from long ago who would prepare the way for Messiah. And we looked at, at the truth that Gabriel bought, brought from God to Zechariah that gave him reason not to be afraid. Well, as I continue to meditate on fears this week, there was a very interesting list of, of fears and phobias that I'd never heard before, and I brought some of them for your consideration today, too, because I want you to be, uh, I want you to be well-educated in all the various kinds of fears that are in our world today, and uh, some of you can add this to your list. Uh, we will go to Luke 1, 26 in just a moment, but I would say these are unique, and that's a polite way of saying it. Uh, some of them are just downright odd. Some of them are humorous. Uh, this is a hard one to pronounce. I've been working on this. Syngenesophobia, the fear of relatives. Some of you are really in the grip of this right now because they're, they're coming and you can't stop them from coming. And you'll put on your best smiley face when they arrive on your porch or in your driveway. But your, your heart rate is going to be elevated and there's going to be a lot of a lot of fear, lipophobia, fear of becoming fat. This is a painful season for that reality, isn't there? Some of you are saying, move on, please. Asymmetrophobia, a fear of asymmetrical things. That's why there are three trees here and three trees there. One wreath there and one wreath there. And if I were to take one of those down or, or even just like maybe even push one of these trees over on its side, some of you would be like, I will not hear another word you say the rest of this service. You may suffer from asymmetrophobia, dipnophobia, fear of dinner parties. Anybody in this crowd? They're saying, oh, that's like, I'm actually thankful for COVID because it's, it's actually like kind of tamped down some of that. And uh, there aren't nearly as many dinner parties this year that I have to go to. And, you know, I'd rather just eat good food in the privacy of my own home. Here's an interesting one. <laughs> Pantherophobia, fear of your mother-in-law. I, I, this is so foreign to me. Like, I, I have no idea how to even sympathize or empathize with those who might suffer from that. All of us, though. And I, I, I think this is, should be pronounced... This way, nomophobia, right? Almost an explanatory word. Fear of losing mobile phone service. All of us could stand to probably lose access to our, our electronic lifestyles and forms of communication that we uh, enjoy and are actually prisoner and captive to. Those are unique, aren't they? There's actually a whole set of real fears each of us carries about. And I want to ask you today, what causes you to be apprehensive or afraid? What are the things that, particularly when you are alone, as this young lady seems to be, and you have time to reflect and think, I mean, where, do, where does your heart run? Often our fears are the result of what we perceive to be threats, 
things that loom large in our hearts and minds. And I'm not saying that these are like imaginary, for the vast majority are real. And that's why just hearing someone step into your world and say, well, don't be afraid or stop worrying is marginally helpful, if at all. Because the reality is that unless there is something to displace or expel that fear, that doubt, that worry, that anxiety, people can say till they're blue in the face, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And it's not going to help. Because whatever captures your attention, whatever occupies your gaze and fills your vision will be the thing ultimately that controls you. And it will not only control you, but out of that control will begin to establish direction for your life and trajectory. Now, sometimes that may be a direction of escape. A trajectory that says, I have to remove myself from this thing that is so fearful, so intimidating. And as we read through the, the encounter that Mary has with Gabriel and then even think beyond the message that he gives to her, her life is going is to involve some things that are actually really hard for her. But there's something that has captured her vision where she will be able to look at even those hard things and ultimately continue singing that song of praise that, that's recorded at the end of Luke. We call it the Magnificat, where she blesses the name of the Lord for what he has done, even though there are secondary consequences that are really hard for her. So that's why I, I want to encourage you to ponder the reality that whatever captures your attention, whatever occupies your gaze and fills your vision is ultimately going to not only control the condition of your heart, but it's going to set the direction of your life. And God knows the human propensity to look at all kinds of things that distract us or worse yet, begin to control our hearts and minds to the place where we won't do what he designs for us to do and we won't be the people that he created us and redeemed us to be. Now, Several months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, I'm going back to Luke 1 where we were last week. You can go ahead and, and open your Bibles to, to Luke 1. We're going to read this portion of Scripture, but several months into that remarkable pregnancy that she and Zechariah never could have expected, uh, Gabriel is now sent on a second mission. And so as we open Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 26, listen to this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... Here's the first of two beholds. I'm just giving you a little clue right at the outset. These beholds are really important. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, in those first couple of verses of this paragraph we read, there really is a backdrop of grace, as I'm going to term it. And I want us to take just a moment to look at that backdrop of grace. First of all, it's a backdrop that I would say is ordinary. The grace of the ordinary. There's nothing really spectacular about the humble origin of Mary. She's from Nazareth. One of Christ's disciples will later say, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, it's, a, it's just an obscure, out-of-the-way place. Nobody aspires to be from Nazareth or to end up there. Second of all, she is a, a, a woman of, of holy character, a virgin, but there were many other girls in Israel who would fall into that category as well. There's certainly a hopeful future for her, but still it's rather ordinary, ordinary at this point. Betrothed to Joseph of the house of David, there probably were a number of young teenage girls who would fall into that category as Mary did. One quick note for us, let's, let's remember that betrothal is not equal in every way to present day engagements for, for marriage. Rather, in the ancient world, there was a two-stage marriage process, the first of which was betrothal. And in that initial phase, there was a formal witnessed agreement between two parties to marry and the giving of a bridal price. At that point, the, the future bride was considered legally bound to her husband and could actually be called his wife, even though they had not come together to establish a home, to enter into that intimate relationship of marriage. Often it was about a year later that the actual marriage uh, would ensue and be consummated. So we're in that window of, of time, it appears, and as you can see, that brings us to the second grace that I would say hangs as a backdrop, the grace of the extraordinary. That's where Gabriel appears and says, greetings. Now, that was a common greeting, but I also want you to know that in its, in its root sense, it, it can be translated with the words rejoice or be glad. So this is one of those greetings that would, would carry some nonverbal force with it uh, that would bring encouragement. And Gabriel has certainly come with an encouraging word because then he says to her, oh, favored one. She is the recipient of God's freely bestowed, beneficent goodwill or grace. It is an extraordinary moment. And she is the only one who has this kind of encounter with Gabriel because she is the uniquely chosen one by God for what we're going to see unfold in just a few moments. And then Gabriel says to her, the Lord is with you. And he uses the title of God that speaks of him in his sovereignty. It would be a synonym for most high. The Lord is with you. The sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe is with you. Ordinary Mary. That's hard for many of us to comprehend that there would ever be a moment that the God of the universe would come near to an ordinary person like us. 
But this not only helps us to understand God's favor being shown to her, but to understand the heart of God himself. He delights to draw near to ordinary people in extraordinary ways. Now look at Mary's response. Again, I think this is a little bit of understatement. She is greatly troubled. Yeah, I mean, you and I get that, don't we? But it's a different kind of trouble than what Zechariah felt. She's actually thrown into confusion. And what becomes apparent as, as you begin to read her response, she's processing just like we do. What, what does this mean? What, I, I know he's sent from God, but what am I supposed to do with this? And the angel is about to help her process all of this and this is where I want you to notice the two beholds that he uses there was a third one there wasn't it when Mary says behold in response but the two beholds of Gabriel set up a couple of categories for us to just just immerse our hearts in and these great realities are the things that undergird the command don't be afraid the first is behold the powerful word of God. Look at verse 31. When Gabriel says, do not be afraid, he is actually making reference to the power of God's favor over her life. And so when he says, don't feel anxious or apprehensive about the situation that's unfolding, he says to her, for you have found favor or grace with God. It's always good for us to remember that God is rich in grace, just as he is rich in mercy. And Mary is not a perfect, sinless woman. Only Jesus was sinless at his conception. She is a woman of faith. She is a woman of purity, as we'll see by her own testimony uh, in, in just a few more lines. But she is as much in need of a savior at this moment as any other human being who walked on the face of the earth. And the reminder that God is showing her favor reminds us that she didn't earn it. She hasn't merited this. This is a a bountiful gift of God's grace to her. The power of God's grace establishes for us a reason to cast fear aside and to live this life in confidence. There's a second aspect of the power of God's word. It's not only a word of grace or favor to her, but it is, it is a word of eternal decree. Now we come to that first behold. And that little word simply means, look at this. So Gabriel is saying, Mary, consider this. And then he's going to give her truth. And now a series of wills and shalls emerge in the passage. I don't know if we were reading through this and any of this captured your attention, but these help us to understand the eternal plans of God that are being revealed, for that's what his decrees are. You know, God has decreed things from eternity past that he is intent on fulfilling in this age of of the world. We sometimes refer to this human history. But God has determined to bring about everything that happens ultimately. And what's unfolding now is the direct fulfillment of prophecies that were given a thousand years before Mary and right up until a couple of hundred years before uh, she was born. Notice some of the wills and shalls with reverence to Mary. You will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. These are the, are the great evidences of God's decrees. Words that were spoken in eternity past that no human being, no entity in the universe has the power or authority or capacity to overturn or upend or to inhibit or prohibit. What an astonishing revelation to this young betrothed virgin named Mary. No doubt as she anticipated her married life, she could only think in terms of bearing Joseph's children, rearing a family together, maybe helping him build that carpenter's business as he was uh, known for and revealed to us in the Gospels. Probably like any other Jewish girl just wanted to follow in the steps of her mother, who apparently was uh, a faithful follower of the Lord. The ordinary grace of betrothal and marriage to a carpenter from Nazareth is giving way at this moment, though, to the extraordinary grace of this powerful word of God. And what news it is that she will be the mother of the Son of the Most High. She will be the mother of the one who will fulfill all the promises given to David. She will be the, one of the, the mother of the one who will ascend that throne. And in comparison to David and Solomon and Uzziah and Josiah, as great as those kings were, his dominion and rule will exceed them all. It must have been an extraordinary an overwhelming moment for her. She will bear the Messiah. Those are some of the powerful truths that would be expulsive of her fear. And what's sweet is she obviously is responding in faith, word by word, phrase by phrase, because how she will respond ultimately and where her heart goes is indicative of the fact that these great truths are expulsive of ordinary and reasonable fears. I pause for a moment and, and want to ask you what headline or circumstance could there possibly be that exerts a greater power in your world than this same truth? That there is a God who created all that is, that there is a God who has decreed all that will be and at the center of it are his decrees concerning his son. Take those cares and concerns of yours and, and place them side by side with these great decrees and realities. Is your chronic illness actually greater than God? Is the financial pressure of this season actually greater than the Most High? Is your sin actually greater than His grace to forgive? I submit to you, there's not anything we could place beside these grand truths of who God is and what he is doing that, that we would evaluate and say, yeah, it actually is greater. Why then do we fear all the stuff in this column when the unchangeable truths in this column are ever-present? Now, I know why, and I know how, because I'm human just like you are, because I stopped thinking about all this great God stuff, and especially Monday morning when you wake up and you're like, oh man, and life is hard, and some employers are really tough to work for, and some financial pressures 
are beyond our capacity to bear. And chronic illness doesn't go away. That's the nature of chronic illness. And you actually hurt and struggle and suffer day after day after day. So I, I want to please know that when I ask that question, I'm not doing it from a self-righteous position of like, come on, people, suck it up. No, the, the point is, let, let God take your heart to where he always seeks to take the hearts of his followers. Behold the powerful word of God. At the center of that, though, is what God himself is doing. There are not only promises to Mary that she will, or promises about Jesus that he will be those things, but the Lord God will do a particular work. And that's what brings us to the second behold. Now, it's tucked, I think, right in the middle of a, of a paragraph here, really, verses 34 through 38, if you want to look at that. But, but can we just, um, can, can we pause here for what I would say is a reality check? I describe it as such because Mary says in verse 34 to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And that's not a statement of unbelief or even disbelief as Zechariah was struggling but she's hearing this, trying to process it, but also looking at the reality of where she is in this position, uh, this stage of life, this position as a betrothed young woman. And when she says, I'm a virgin, literally the words read, I do not know a man. And that speaks both of her purity. Like she, she knows God's law, that the sexual relationship is reserved for marriage, and because she's not there yet, she, she hasn't had relationships with a man, she's not going to until it's fully authorized. So this is a bit of a reality check. It, I, I was thinking about this this week, that if, if Elizabeth were to speak in at this moment and to kind of grab uh, part of the, the, the story that we looked at last week, Elizabeth would say, and I'm barren. How, how's this going to work, God. And that got me to thinking, you know, there are lots of examples in the scriptures of people who hear the promises of God and, and then that reality of who they are, where they are, emerges. And so we all have something that we insert in a blank like that. I am, as Jeremiah said, a youth when God called him. And God said, well, Jeremiah, don't, don't say I am but a youth. And God redirected him, just like he redirected Elizabeth and Zechariah to his great promises, and he's redirecting Mary. I wonder what your fill-in-the-blank is. The reason that you think either a relationship with God is not even possible or, or serving him in the way that he seems to be moving you or inclining your heart, and you just feel like, it's just not me. I'm not educated enough, or I'm not trained enough, or I just don't have the personality for that kind of thing. But what is your reality check that you'd kind of say, okay, Lord, hold on a second. I am what? Well, again, the Lord just continues to press into her soul through Gabriel, his messenger, and, and there's a promised work that he begins to describe in verse 35. First of all, the child will be miraculously conceived. Isn't it sweet that in essence he's saying, Mary, you don't have to compromise your purity for this. I've got it all planned. In verse 35, he says very simply, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, normal childbirth is marvelous. That's why I put that, screen, or that, that shot on the screen there. David writes of this mystery in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, and listen to how he describes this. He's praising God and says, For you formed my inward parts when you knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Listen to this. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And David's using terminology to describe what we sometimes say is a miracle of birth. In some ways it is. Strictly speaking, theologically, it's not a miracle. It's still just a marvelous work, though, that God is is involved with as a creator and designer, as an artisan, if you will. And it causes every one of us to marvel. To encourage Jeremiah, I alluded to his little, you know, reality check objection to the Lord. I'm but a youth. But God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Here's God behind every single birth that has ever happened on planet Earth. Some of them are exceptional. Elizabeth's is one of them. It is a greater marvel than an ordinary birth because she and Zachariah were just too old to have kids. But God said, it's time. But Mary's conception is an unparalleled miracle never to be duplicated. Nobody else who shares something like this. Now, I will interject that throughout history and mythology, there have been many stories of the gods having sexual relations with humans. Hercules was the illegitimate child of Zeus and a mortal woman, as were Perseus, Helen of Troy, and Minos, among other very, very famous offspring of Zeus. And as one author wrote, yep, the Greek god family tree is very, very tangled. The genealogy is near impossible to try to map. But we're not talking about that kind of thing here. And the text is very, very clear. You know, in our context... Historically, the LDS claim has, has, uh, of part of the restored gospel includes the narrative that Heavenly Father actually had physical relations with Mary. I would say that's not only false, it is pagan in its origins. And, and there is lots of documented writing and teaching. If you wanted to know more about that, I would be happy to point you in some directions uh, or, or to some resources and in directions where you could investigate that that clearly, but it is grievous to me, and it ought to be to any follower of Christ that it would be, that that teaching would be propagated saying that Jesus, who who we know was not the son of Joseph, but as one uh, Mormon teacher posited who's highly regarded, nor was he begotten by the Holy Ghost. Well, clearly that's a contradiction of what the Gospel of Luke tells us. The vital truth of this mystery is being revealed to us, and the vital truth is this. The Spirit will exert his power over Mary to bring this child into the world. It's this, there's, a, there's a little echo of Genesis 1 where the Spirit hovers over what was formerly characterized by chaos and darkness, and he, by his sovereign power, begins to bring order and abundance, and everything that was without form and void springs to life. And I submit to you that this particular work, this miraculous conception is even more glorious than creation. The child will be miraculously conceived. There's a second thought here. The child will be divinely consecrated. Gabriel goes on to say, therefore the child to be born will be called holy. And certainly holiness has the idea of purity, but what he is really focusing on is that he is is unique. He exists in a category all of his own, and it will not be shared with anyone else. 
Jesus is separate from all others. And not just because he is God, but even by virtue of this uh, incarnation. He will be called holy, the son of God. You know, there are unusual birth stories throughout the scriptures. I alluded to some of those last week and several children who, from all human perspectives, should never have entered the world. And so God gave promises to Abraham and Sarah that were fulfilled in Isaac. God gave promises uh, to Hannah and Elkanah that culminated in the birth of Samuel. And God gave promises to Zechariah and Elizabeth that Uh, were realized in the birth of their son, John, who would become that mighty prophet, John the Baptist, but none compared to this, the holy son of God. And now a second behold is given, the second powerful truth in all of this. The, the, The work of God is exactly what Mary needs to set her heart upon, lest she succumb to her fears. And he is giving her every reason Uh, to be full of faith, to press forward in hope and expectation. And here, the second behold uh, reminds us the extent of God's power. Very sweetly, verse 36, he takes her back and says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Hey, Mary, Uh, You're aware of this, aren't you? Just set your heart upon the extent of God's power. There's a baby shower this afternoon. Guys never got into this for some reason. As a matter of fact, whoever came up with this couple's shower idea, it's of the devil. (laughs) Ladies, though, it's not terrible. It's a guy thing. My wife just confronted me. We're happy for babies that born. We'll give the guy a pat on the back and you know, offer a prayer, but really, to come together to, you know, eat cupcakes and watch our friend open a present? There's football this afternoon, right? (laughs) I don't know exactly what Elizabeth's family did in celebration, other than what was recorded in the text, and we looked briefly at that, but the whole community was celebrating this thing, and it stands to reason that Mary, at some point, got in on the celebration. She's going to go make a visit to Elizabeth, I mean, but this was like a spectacular moment. Any birth is, but some are in a category all of their own. And and Gabriel, as God's messenger, directs Mary's heart to this extraordinary evidence of God's power. We want to put God in a box always, don't we? We want to keep our relationship with him manageable. And so sometimes we even try to rein him in well, he's sovereign, but he can't be that sovereign because that's scary to me. And, and so we try, to, we try to pull that side of the box in a little closer where we're comfortable. There are other aspects of his character, his work, that make us very uncomfortable. Beloved, if you ever reach a point where you can truly understand God, you just put him to death, functionally. He's infinite. He's eternal. You know, there's this... None of us has mastered this book, right? I mean, if you could just actually master everything this book tells us about God, that'd be a huge step. But you realize this is just part of God's revelation of who he is and what he has done. And for eternity, we're going to learn stuff every day about him and go, are you serious? 
really? You never told us in that previous life you were or that you do, and he'll smile and say, welcome to eternity. It's good for us to look back and be reminded of the miraculous and marvelous things that God has done. And so Gabriel says to her, hey, can I remind you about Elizabeth? But then look at verse 37. Here's the really big point. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, there seems to be a little bit of an echo going all the way back to Genesis 18, 14, where God is giving promises to Abraham, who also said, where's the son? Where's the son? You, you said that my offspring would be like the sand of the, the seashore, the stars of heaven. We haven't had one. And in Genesis 18, verse 14, you read a, a question that is designed to make a very powerful point, and the question is this, is anything too hard for the Lord? And God said to Abraham, at the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah could hardly believe it. Abraham is stunned by these things, but the question lingers. Is, is anything too hard for the Lord? And this is just a little different way of saying the same thing, just affirming it. Nothing will be impossible with God. The scriptures tell us that Abraham put his faith in the God in whom he believed, Romans 4 verse 17 says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Romans 4 18 goes on to say, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. There, that's how he would fill in his I am blank. I'm a virgin. Uh, I am barren. He's looking at his wife going, she's old and I am as good as dead. You say, really? Yeah. If you're in Romans 4, keep reading with me. Look at this. He considered it his own body, which was as good as dead, and then Paul, parenthetically, since he was about 100 years old, again, understatement, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, here, I love this, verses 20 and 21, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And here it is, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that's the real issue. Do You know, I grew up in a, a Christian home, heard the gospel from the time I was born. But I'll tell you, I hit my teenage years and something happened where I was a nervous wreck. I was a basket case of a Christian so uncertain as to my eternal destiny. Prayed scores and scores, if not hundreds and hundreds of times, Lord, if I die in my sleep tonight, please do not let me go to hell. Please do not let me suffer judgment and torment. Wrestled with that until my sophomore year of college, and then in, through the particular conversations and ministry that God used with an uncle of mine, he, I, I was just pouring out my heart. I'm just dying inside, so fearful, so uncertain. And my uncle said, Danny, you're looking for assurance in the wrong place. Here's the real issue. Is Jesus who he said he is, and does Jesus do what he says he does? And that was the day that I went, there it is. You know, as long as you're looking inside for assurance, you're never going to find it. But when you begin to recognize that God is able to do what he promises, and not just able, like, mm, maybe I'll get around to it, maybe I will, but he actually does everything he says, man, your life becomes settled and secure in ways that you couldn't fathom. The problem is some of you right now are still going, eh, I don't know if I can trust God in that way. Do you provide a better alternative for your heart right now? Is Washington, D.C. providing a little more security for you than the promises of God? The medical world right now, 
as much as we praise God for them and pray for God's blessing over them? I mean, are you really going to put your faith and trust in the next Dr. Fauci press conference or the next CDC recommendations or even what our, our governor and our medical professionals here, they're still trying to get it figured out. Praise God for all that they're doing, but you see where I'm going with this, right? If you're not going to trust God, who and what, where will you trust? But here's Abraham going, yeah, I'm good as dead, 100 years old, my wife, mm, not much hope or promise there, but God said, I'm fully convinced. In response to Jesus' teaching that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to be saved, the disciples almost despair in that moment, and they say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer to them in Matthew 19, 26 is simply this, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And this isn't Aladdin, genie in a bottle kind of stuff where, you, you know, if, if, if you just, you know, wave your hand over those promises and say, nothing is impossible, nothing is impossible, nothing is impossible, you know, suddenly poof, you know, you get all the magic stuff that you're kind of hoping for in life. No, this is where you, by faith, look at those promises and say, you know what, if God said it, I believe it, I'm going to begin to live in light of it. Our God has a long track record of doing impossible things. And this powerful work of God Most High to bring the Son of the Most High into the world by the power of the Most High, because that's how the Holy Spirit is referred to in Gabriel's promise, is what actually addresses the hundred impossibilities that exist in your soul at this moment. The impossibilities of a spouse's conversion, a child's return to the faith, a friend's admission that he really is a sinner in need of the forgiveness of Christ. It's the answer to how you will survive the economic storm that you are in at this moment because God said, I am the God who provides. It's the answer to how you say, how can I, how can I pay for college? How can I finish this season of training? Well, nothing is impossible with God. And when he calls you to these things and when he, when he puts his promises underneath you, he brings it to pass. How will we plant a church in Saratoga Springs? This crew, really? No offense, Nick, Paul, we love you guys. I'm so excited about the grace of God that I see operating in your life, but guys, we're talking about planting a church and maybe even doing some building and construction around here. Really? Has Matt Parker lost his mind? You know, if God is actually calling us to these things, then it's not just not impossible. It actually will come to pass. The pressure's off of us. And we can, we can walk ourselves through this kind of thinking because the God who brought his son into the world through miraculous conception by the virgin birth can do whatever he sets his heart on doing. I love Mary's response. Look at verse 38. This actually is the point. It's what we need to do as well. Mary said, Behold, Gabriel, consider this. I am the servant of the Lord. Isn't that sweet? You see how she filled in the blank differently now? Went from, I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. But you're telling me I'm going to be a mom? Mm -hmm. But now she hears all this glorious truth the powerful word of God. She's reminded of the powerful work of God in her own relative, Elizabeth. And now she just comes to a point that says, I, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. How will this be? God's going to do it. So let it be. 
Mary's submission, if we're really honest, is not going to be an easy path because it's going to mean enduring the turmoil of Joseph's response to the news and his initial decision, or at least wrestling with, writing her a bill of divorce and putting her away. You think that was turmoil? Oh, yeah. It's going to mean explaining to family and friends, first of all, that an angel showed up and spoke to her. I mean, if your teenager came in a little later today and said, Mom, Dad, can we talk? A messenger named Gabriel came from God and said to me, it's going to mean bearing the lifelong burden of suspicion and accusation. Years later, the religious rulers in confrontation with Jesus in trying to publicly shame him and put him in his place, say to him, it's recorded in John 8, 41, those, those wicked men and Christ deniers, Christ haters said, we were not born of sexual immorality. Do you think that pained Mary's heart? I'll guarantee you it did. How could it not? So that's the cost of her submission on the one column. But again, if you set your heart on the greater truths, the word and work of God, you can survive that stuff. And what's in the other column? Well, it means seeing God fulfill his word, his eternal word. It means experiencing the work of God personally. Now, now none of us are going to step into that category, right? I mean, that, that's kind of a one-of-a-kind. But re, don't forget the fact that the story of Scripture is the God of the universe coming into the lives of, of ordinary people and doing extraordinary things. And then number three, rejoicing eternally in God our Savior. And that's what actually sets the stage for the Magnificat. I don't think she sang that just one time and was done with it. I think that was a testimony of her heart all those days. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on generations will call me blessed. Wait a second, aren't some people calling you that immoral woman who gave birth to that illegitimate son? Yeah, yeah, but forget about them. In this column over here, thousands upon thousands look at Mary and say, oh, blessed of God and we're among them. Mary moves from how can this be to let it be and so should we. The powerful word and work of God is expulsive of all her fears, and it is also expulsive of our fears. What are you beholding today? And if the hours of your ordinary days are filled with worldly entertainment or headline news or social media feeds or uploads or downloads or whatever it might be, it is understandable that you are absolutely terrified at this moment because what you are beholding is so uncertain, unstable, immoral, and unfaithful, that's of course going to translate into the condition of your soul and the trajectory of your life. But if we come to God's word in order that we might know him and then submit to his word, we will find ourselves in a much different place. Do not be afraid because God is sovereign. Lord God, we sang it a little while ago. It remains the prayer of our heart and the praise of our souls. Behold our God seated on his throne. Nothing can compare to you. And that causes our hearts to rejoice. How thankful we are that there's not a, a, a second rival who threatens your righteous and holy and gracious and loving dominion at this hour. But you are king eternal, king forever. And you have chosen your King Jesus, and you have seated him upon his throne and, and say to the nations, why do you rage? Why do you imagine a vain thing? Why do you conspire to overthrow my king? 
Oh, this makes our hearts glad. But we freely confess, Lord, we are too consumed with our own fears and anxieties. And there are many things in life right now that seem greater to us. They appear even to be greater at this moment than you are. Please forgive us. Help our little faith to grow. Expel our unbelief. Expel our fears. Expel our doubts. And just accomplish your will. And with Mary we say, we too are just your servants. Let it be. Let it be to each of us as you have determined. I think of those who tremble daily because they don't know you, people who are dear to our souls, family and friends, those in this community. Some who have a, a form of religion and are very zealous and committed to it. Others who are, who are absolutely without religious connections or practices, but all who are in need of this Son, the Holy Son of God, the Son of the Most High. They need Jesus because only He can save us from our sins. Oh, Lord God, move in us and move through us. And may others see in us the power, the security, the settledness of Christ so that as we say to them, do not be afraid, as we pass a, a little bookmark to them with that precious scripture to us, we might be able to share with them why we are not people who live in fear, who gladly bear the reproaches of Christ, but who eagerly hope for eternity with him. I'll do that good work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.